Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Greatest Love Stories. This is your host, John Hagedorn, and today, Chapter 2, From Marie, by H. Ryder Haggard. The Attack on Marie Fontaine. I do not propose to set out the history of the years which I spent in acquiring a knowledge of French and various other subjects under the tuition of the learned but prejudiced Monsieur Leblanc. Indeed, there is none to tell, sir. When Monsieur Leblanc was sober, he was a most excellent and well-informed tutor, although one apt to digress into many side issues which in themselves were not uninstructive. When tipsy, he grew excited and harangued us, generally upon politics and religion, or rather its reverse, for he was an advanced free-thinker, although this was a side to his character which, however intoxicated he might be, he always managed to conceal from the heir Moray. I may add that a certain childish code of honor prevented us from betraying his views on this and sundry other matters. When absolutely drunk, which, on the average, was not more than once a month, he simply slept, and we did what we pleased, a fact which our childish code of honor also prevented us from betraying. But on the whole, we got on very well together, for after the incident of our first meeting, Monsieur Leblanc was always polite to me. Marie he adored, as did everyone about the place, from her father down to the meanest slave. Need I add that I adored her more than all them put together, first with the love that some children have for each other, and afterwards, as we became adult, with that wider love by which it is at once transcended and made complete. Strange would it have been if this were not so, seeing that we spent nearly half of every week practically alone together, and that, from the first, Marie, whose nature was as open as the clear noon, never concealed her affection for me. True, it was a very discreet affection, almost sisterly, or even motherly, in its outward and visible aspects, as though she could never forget that extra half-inch of height or month or two of age. Moreover, from a child she was a woman, as an Irishman might say, for circumstances and character had shaped her thus. Not much more than a year before we met, her mother, whose only child she was, and whom she loved with all her strong and passionate heart, died after a lingering illness, leaving her in charge of her father and his house. I think it was this heavy bereavement in early youth which colored her nature with a great tinge of sadness and made her seem so much older than her years. So the time went on, I worshipping Marie in my secret thought, but saying nothing about it, and Marie talking of and acting towards me as though I were her dear younger brother. Nobody, not even her father or mine, or Monsieur Leblanc, took the slightest notice of this queer relationship, or seemed to dream that it might lead to ultimate complications which, in fact, would have been very distasteful to them all for reasons that I will explain. Needless to say, in due course, as they were bound to do, those complications arose, and under pressure of great physical and moral excitement the truth came out. It happened this way. Every reader of the history of the Cape Colony has heard of the Great Kaffir War of 1835. That war took place for the most part in the districts of Albany and Somerset, so that we inhabitants of Craddock, on the whole, suffered little. Therefore, with the natural optimism and carelessness of danger of dwellers in wild places, we began to think ourselves fairly safe from attack. Indeed, so we should have been, had it not been for a foolish action on the part of Monsieur Leblanc. It seems that on a certain Sunday, a day that I always spent at home with my father, Monsieur Leblanc rode out alone to some hills about five miles distant from Marais-Fontaine. He had often been cautioned that this was an unsafe thing to do, but the truth is that the foolish man thought he had found a rich copper mine in these hills, and was anxious that no one should share his secret. Therefore, on Sundays, when there were no lessons, and the heir Marais was in the habit of celebrating family prayers, which Leblanc disliked, it was customary for him to ride to these hills and there collect geological specimens and locate the strike of his copper vein. On this particular Sabbath, which was very hot, after he had done whatever he intended to do, he dismounted from his horse, a tame old beast. Leaving it loose, he partook of the meal which he had brought with him, and which seems to have included a bottle of peach brandy that induced slumber. Waking up towards evening, he found that his horse had gone, and at once jumped to the conclusion that it had been stolen by kaffirs, although in truth the animal had but strolled over a ridge in search of grass. Running hither and thither to seek it, he presently crossed this ridge and met the horse, apparently being led away by two of the red kaffirs, who, as was usual, were armed with the segais. As a matter of fact, these men had found the beast, and, 
knowing well to whom it belonged, were seeking its owner, whom, earlier in the day, they had seen upon the hills, in order to restore it to him. This, however, never occurred to the mind of M. LeBlanc, excited as it was by the fumes of the peach brandy. Lifting the double-barreled gun he carried, he fired at the first kaffir, a young man who chanced to be the eldest son and heir of the chief of the tribe, and, as the range was very close, shot him dead. Thereupon his companion, leaving go of the horse, ran for his life. At him LeBlanc fired also, wounding him slightly in the thigh, but no more, so that he escaped to tell the tale of what he and every other native for miles round considered a wanton and premeditated murder. The deed done, the fiery old Frenchman mounted his nag and rode quietly home. On the road, however, as the peach brandy evaporated from his brain, doubts entered it, with the result that he determined to say nothing of his adventure to Henri Marais, who he knew was particularly anxious to avoid any cause of quarrel with the Kaffirs. So he kept his own counsel and went to bed. Before he was up next morning, the heir Marais, suspecting neither trouble nor danger, had ridden off to a farm thirty miles or more away to pay its owner for some cattle which he had recently bought, leaving his home and his daughter quite unprotected, except by LeBlanc and the few native servants, who were really slaves, that lived about the place. Now on the Monday night I went to bed as usual, and slept, as I've always done through life, like a top, till about four in the morning, when I was awakened by someone tapping at the glass of my window. Slipping from the bed I felt for my pistol, as it was quite dark, crept to the window, opened it, and keeping my head below the level of the sill, fearing lest its appearance should be greeted with an assegai, asked who was there. "'Me, boss,' said the voice of Hans, our Hottentot servant, who, it will be remembered, had accompanied me as after-writer when first I went to Marais-Fontaine. "'I have bad news. Listen. The boss knows that I have been out searching for the red cow which was lost. Well, I found her and was sleeping by her side under a tree on the veld when, about two hours ago, a woman whom I know came up to my campfire and woke me. I asked her what she was doing at that hour of the night, and she answered that she had come to tell me something. She said that some young men of the tribe of the chief Kwabi, who lives in the hills yonder, had been visiting at their crawl, and that a few hours before a messenger had arrived from the chief saying that they must return at once, as this morning at dawn he and all his men were going to attack Marie Fontaine and kill everyone in it, and take the cattle. Good God! I ejaculated. Why? Because, young boss, drawled the Hottentot from the other side of the window, because someone from Murray Fontaine, I think it was the vulture, the natives gave this name to LeBlanc on account of his bald head and hooked nose, shot Quabi's son on Sunday when he was holding his horse. Good God! I said again. The old fool must have been drunk. When did you say the attack was to be? "'At dawn?' "'And I glanced at the stars, adding, "'Why, that'll be less than an hour, "'and the boss Marais is away.' "'Yes,' croaked Hans. "'And Missy Marie. "'Think of what the Red Kaffirs will do with Missy Marie "'when their blood is up.' "'I thrust my fist through the window "'and struck the Hottentot's toad-like face "'on which the starlight gleamed faintly. "'Dog,' I said, "'saddle my mare and the roan horse and get your gun. "'In two minutes I come. "'Be swift or I kill you.' "'I go,' he answered, and shot out into the night like a frightened snake. Then I began to dress, shouting as I dressed, till my father and the kaffirs ran into the room. As I threw on my things, I told them all. "'Send out messengers,' I said, "'to Murray. He's at Botha's farm, and to all the neighbors. Send, for your lives, gather up the friendly kaffirs, and ride like hell for Marie Fontaine. Don't talk to me, father. Don't talk. Go and do what I tell you. Stay. Give me two guns.' "'Fill the saddlebags with powder tins and loopers "'and tie them to my mare. "'Oh, be quick! Be quick!' "'Now at length they understood "'and flew this way and that with candles and lanterns. Two minutes later, it could scarcely have been more, "'I was out front of the stables "'just as Hans let out the bay mare, "'a famous beast that for two years "'I had saved all my money to buy. "'Someone strapped on the saddlebags "'while I tested the girths. "'Someone else appeared with the stout roan stallion "'that I knew would follow the mare to the death.' There was not time to saddle him, so Hans clambered onto his back like a monkey, holding two guns under his arm, for I carried but one and my double-barreled pistol. "'Send off the messengers,' I shouted to my father. "'If you would see me again, send them swiftly, and follow with every man you can raise.' 
"'Then we were away with fifteen miles to do "'and five and thirty minutes before the dawn. "'Softly up the slope,' I said to Hans, "'till the beasts get their wind, "'and then ride as you've never ridden before. "'Those first two miles of rising ground! "'I thought we would never come to the end of them, "'and yet I dared not let the mare out "'lest she should bucket herself. "'Happily she and her companion, the stallion, "'a most enduring horse, though not so very swift, "'had stood idle for the last thirty hours "'and, of course, had not eaten or drunk since sunset. "'Therefore, being in fine fettle, "'they were keen for the business. "'Also, we were light weights. "'I held in the mare as she spurted up the rise, "'and the horse kept his pace to hers. "'We reached its crest, "'and before us lay the great level plain, eleven miles of it, "'and then two miles down the hill to Marais-Fontaine. "'Now!' I said to Hans, shaking loose the reins. Keep up if you can. We'll return with our story right after these sponsor messages. Hi, everyone. The holiday season is upon us, and I'll be glued to the telly for BritBox on many a night. I've already shared with you the fact that I keep up with Father Brown and Poirot at BritBox. I also check out their new stuff, like the new series Archie, which tells the story of Archie Leach, otherwise known to millions of filmgoers as Cary Grant. This story comes from his daughter, Jennifer Grant, and ex-wife, Diane Cannon. It's a series. The performance of Jason Isaacs, who plays Cary Grant, is top-notch. I highly recommend it. You can only find it on my favorite TV, BritBox. Sign up to BritBox today to stream Archie and other fan favorites today from any device. I have a special, limited-time offer for my U.S. and Canadian listeners. Get 50% off your first month when you sign up for a monthly plan, but only if you go to BritBox.com and use my promo code 1001STORIES at checkout. Don't wait. Get 50% off your first month. Just use promo code 1001STORIES at BritBox.com. Try it. You'll like it. And now back to Marie by H. Ryder Haggard. Away sped the mare till the keen air of the night sung past my ears, and behind her strained the good roan horse with the hot and tot monkey on its back. Oh, what a ride was that! Further I have gone for a like cause, but never at such speed, for I knew the strength of the beasts and how long it would last them. Half an hour of it they might endure, more, and at this pace they must founder or die. And yet such was the agony of my fear that it seemed to me as though I only crept along the ground like a tortoise. The roan was left behind, the sound of his footbeats died away, and I was alone with the night and my fear. Mile added itself to mile, for now and again the starlight showed me a stone or the skeleton of some dead beast that I knew. Once I dashed into a herd of trekking game so suddenly that a springbok, unable to stop itself, leapt right over me. Once the mare put her foot in an ant-bear hole and nearly fell, but recovered herself, thanks be to God, unharmed and I worked myself back into the saddle from whence I'd almost been shaken. If I'd fallen! Oh, if I'd fallen! We were near the end of the flat, and she began to fail. I had overpressed her. The pace was too tremendous. Her speed lessened to an ordinary fast gallop as she faced the gentle rise that led to the brow. And now, behind me, once more I heard the sound of the hoofs of the roan. The tireless beast was coming up. By the time we reached the edge of the plateau, he was quite near, not fifty yards behind, for I heard him whinny faintly. Then began the descent. The morning star was setting. The east grew gray with light. Oh, could we get there before dawn? Could we get there before the dawn? That's what my horse's hoofs beat out to me. Now I could see the mass of the trees about the stead, and now I dashed into something, though until I was through it, I did not know that it was a line of men, for the faint light gleamed upon the spear of one of them who had been overthrown. So it was no lie. The Kaffirs were there. As I thought it, a fresh horror filled my heart. Perhaps their murdering work was already done, and they were departing. The minute of suspense, or was it but seconds, seemed an eternity, but it ended at last. Now I was at the door in the high wall that includes the outbuildings at the back of the house, and there, by an inspiration, pulled up the mare. Glad enough she was to stop, poor thing, "'for it occurred to me that if I rode to the front "'I should very probably be a segide "'and of no further use. "'I tried the door, "'which was made of stout stinkwood planks. "'By design or by accident, "'it had been left unbolted. "'As I thrust it open, "'Hans arrived with a rush, "'clinging to the roan "'with his face hidden in its mane. 
The beast pulled up by the side of the mare which it had been pursuing, and in the faint light I saw that an Asegai spear was fixed in its flank. Five seconds later we were in the yard and locking and barring the door behind us. Then, snatching the saddlebags of ammunition from the horses, we left them standing there, and I ran for the back entrance of the house, bidding Hans rouse the natives, who slept in the outbuildings, and follow with them. If any one of them showed signs of treachery, he was to shoot him at once. I remember that as I went I tore the spear out of the stallion's flank and brought it away with me. Now I was hammering upon the back door of the house, which I could not open. After a pause that seemed long, a window was thrown wide, and a voice, it was Marie's, asked in frightened tones who was there. "'I, Alan Quartermain,' I answered. "'Open at once, Marie. You are in great danger. The Red Kaffirs are going to attack the house.' She flew to the door in her nightdress, and at length I was in the place. "'Thank God you're still safe,' I gasped. "'Put on your clothes while I call LeBlanc.' "'No, stay. Do you call him. "'I must wait here for Hans and your slaves.' "'Away she sped without a word, "'and presently Hans arrived, "'bringing with him eight frightened men, "'who as yet scarcely knew "'whether they slept or woke. "'Is that all?' I asked. "'Then bar the door and follow me to the sit-cammer, "'where the boss keeps his guns.' "'Just as we reached it, LeBlanc entered, "'clad in his shirt and trousers, "'and was followed presently by Marie with a candle. "'What is it?' he asked. I took the candle from Marie's hand and set it on the floor close to the wall, lest it should prove a target for an assegai or a bullet. Even in those days the Kaffirs had a few firearms, for the most part captured or stolen from white men. Then in a few words I told them all. "'And when did you learn all this?' asked LeBlanc in French. "'At the mission station a little more than half an hour ago,' I answered, looking at my watch. "'At the station? A little more than half an hour ago?' "'Peste! It is not possible. "'You dream or are drunken,' he cried excitedly. "'All right, monsieur. We will argue afterwards,' I answered. "'Meanwhile the Kaffirs are here, for I rode through them, "'and if you want to save your life, stop talking and act. "'Marie, how many guns are there?' Four, she answered, of my father's. two roars and two smaller ones. "'And how many of these men,' and I pointed to the Kaffirs, "'can shoot?' Three well, and one badly, Alan. Good, I said. Let them load the guns with loopers, that is, slugs, not bullets, and let the rest stand in the passage with their assegais, in case the quabby should try to force the back door. Now in this house that were in all but six windows, one to each sitting room, one to each of the larger bedrooms, these four opening onto the veranda, and one at the other end of the house, to give light and air to the two small bedrooms, which were approached through the larger bedrooms. At the back, fortunately, there were no windows, for the stead was but one room deep with a passage running from the front to the back door, a distance of little over fifteen feet. As soon as the guns were loaded, I divided up the men, a man with a gun at each window. The right-hand sitting-room window I took myself with two guns, Marie coming with me to load, which, like all girls in that wild country, she could do well enough. So we arranged ourselves in a rough-and-ready fashion, and while we were doing it felt quite cheerful, that is, all except Monsieur LeBlanc, who, I noticed, seemed very much disturbed. I do not for one moment mean to suggest that he was afraid, as he might well have been, for he was an extremely brave and even rash man. But I think the knowledge that his drunken act had brought this terrible danger upon us all weighed on his mind. Also there may have been more, some subtle foreknowledge of the approaching end to a life that, when all allowances were made, "'could scarcely be called well spent. "'At any rate, he fidgeted at his window-place, "'cursing beneath his breath, "'and soon, as I saw out of the corner of my eye, "'began to have recourse to his favorite bottle of peach brandy, "'which he fetched out of a cupboard. "'The slaves, too, were gloomy, "'as all natives are when suddenly awakened in the night, "'but as the light grew they became more cheerful. "'Now that we had made such little preparations as we could, "'which, by the way, I supplemented by causing some furniture "'to be piled up against the front and back doors, there came a pause, which, speaking for my own part, being, after all, only a lad at the time, I found very trying to the nerves. There I stood at my window with the two guns, one a double barrel and one a single roar, or elephant gun, that took a tremendous charge, but both, be it remembered, flintlocks, for although percussion caps had been introduced, we were a little behind the times in Craddock. There, too, crouched on the ground beside me, 
holding the ammunition ready for reloading, her long black hair flowing about her shoulders, was Marie Marais, now a well-grown young woman. In the intense silence she whispered to me, "'Why did you come here, Alan? You were safe yonder, and now you will probably be killed.' "'To try and save you,' I answered simply. "'What would you have had me do?' "'To try and save me? Oh, that is good of you, but you should have thought of yourself.' "'Then I should still have thought of you, Marie.' "'Why, Alan? "'Because you are myself, and more than myself. "'If anything happened to you, what would my life be to me?' "'I I don't quite understand, Alan,' she replied, "'staring down at the floor. "'Tell me, what do you mean?' "'Mean, you silly girl,' I said. "'What can I mean, except that I love you, "'which I thought you knew long ago?' "'Oh,' she said, "'now I understand.' "'Then she raised herself upon her knees "'and held up her face to me to kiss, adding, "'There, that's my answer, "'the first and perhaps the last. "'Thank you, Alan, dear. "'I'm glad to have heard that, "'for you see one or both of us may die soon.' "'And she spoke the words, "'and a segai flashed to the window place, "'passing just between our heads. "'So we gave over love-making "'and turned our attention to war.' Now the light was beginning to grow, flowing out of the pearly eastern sky, but no attack had yet been delivered, although that one was imminent that spear fixed in the plaster of the wall behind us showed clearly. Perhaps the Kafirs had been frightened by the galloping of horses through their line in the dark, not knowing how many of them there might have been. Or perhaps they were waiting to see better where to deliver their onset. These were the ideas that occurred to me, but both were wrong." They were staying their hands until the mist lifted a little from the hollow below the stead where the cattle crawls were situated, for while the fog remained, they could not see to get the beasts out, and they wanted the cattle. These they wished to make sure of and drive away before the fight began, lest during its progress something should happen to rob them of their booty. Presently from these crawls, where the air marais horned beasts and sheep were penned at night, about one hundred and fifty of the former, and some two thousand of the latter, to say nothing of the horses, for he was a large and prosperous farmer, there arose a sound of bellowing, neighing, and buying, and with it that of the shouting of men. "'They're driving off the stock,' said Marie. "'Oh, my poor father, he is ruined. It will break his heart.' "'Bad enough,' I answered. "'But there are things that might be worse. "'Hark!' As I spoke there came a sound of stamping feet and of a wild war chant. Then in the edge of the mist that hung above the hollow where the cattle crawls were, "'Figures appeared, moving swiftly to and fro, "'looking ghostly and unreal. "'The Kafirs were marshalling their men for the attack. "'A minute more, and it had begun. "'On up the slope they came in long, wavering lines, "'several hundreds of them, whistling and screaming, "'shaking their spears, their war-plumes and hair trappings "'blown back by the breeze, the lust of slaughter in their rolling eyes. Two or three of them had guns, which they fired as they ran, "'but where the bullets went I do not know.' "'Over the house, probably. "'I called out to LeBlanc and the Kafirs not to shoot till I did, "'for I knew that they were poor marksmen "'and that much depended upon our first volley being effective. "'Then, as the captain of this attack came within thirty yards of the stoop, "'for now the light, growing swiftly, "'was strong enough to enable me to distinguish him by his apparel "'and the rifle which he held, "'I loosed at him with the roar and shot him dead. "'Indeed, the heavy bullet passing through his body "'mortally wounded another of the Quabies behind.' These were the first men that I ever killed in war. As they fell, LeBlanc and the rest of our people fired also, the slugs from their guns doing great execution at that range, which was just long enough to allow them to scatter. When the smoke cleared a little, I saw that nearly a dozen men were down, and that the rest, dismayed by this reception, had halted. If they had come on then, while we were loading, doubtless they might have rushed the place, but... Being unused to the terrible effects of firearms, they paused, amazed. A number of them, twenty or thirty perhaps, clustered about the bodies of the fallen Kafirs, and, seizing my second gun, I fired both barrels at these with such fearful effect that the whole regiment took to their heels and fled, leaving their dead and wounded on the ground. As they ran, our servants cheered, but I called to them to be silent and load swiftly, knowing well that the enemy would soon return. For a time, however, nothing happened, although we could hear them talking somewhere near the cattle crawl, about 150 yards away. 
Marie took advantage of this pause, I remember, to fetch food and distribute it among us. I, for one, was glad enough to get it. Now the sun was up, a sight for which I thanked heaven, for at any rate we could no longer be surprised. Also, with the daylight, some of my fear passed away, since darkness always makes danger twice as terrible to man and beast. Whilst we were still eating and fortifying the window places as best we could, so as to make them difficult to enter, a single kaffir appeared, waving above his head a stick to which was tied a white oxtail as a sign of truce. I ordered that no one should fire, and when the man, who was a bold fellow, had reached the spot where the dead captain lay, called to him, asking his business, for I could speak his language well. He answered that he had come with a message from Quabi. This was the message that Quabi's eldest son had been cruelly murdered by the fat white man called Vulture, who lived with the heir Murray, and that he, Quabi, would have blood for blood. Still, he did not wish to kill the young white chieftainess, that was Marie, or the others in the house, with whom he had no quarrel. Therefore, if we would give up the fat white man that we might make him die slowly, Quabi would be content with his life and with the cattle that he had already taken by way of a fine, and leave us and the house unmolested. Now, when LeBlanc understood the nature of this offer, he went perfectly mad with mingled fear and rage, and began to shout and swear in French. "'Be silent!' I said. "'We do not mean to surrender you, although you have brought all this trouble upon us. Your chance of life is as good as ours. Are you not ashamed to act so before these people?' When at last he grew more or less quiet, I called to the messenger that we white folk were not in the habit of abandoning each other, "'and that we would live or die together. "'Still I bade him tell Quabi that if we did die, "'the vengeance taken on him and all his people "'would be to wipe them out till not one of them was left, "'and therefore that he would do well "'not to cause any of our blood to flow. "'Also I added that we had thirty men in the house, "'which of course was a lie, "'and plenty of ammunition and food, "'so that if he chose to continue the attack, "'it would be the worst for him and his tribe.' On hearing this, the herald shouted back that we should every one of us be dead before noon if he had his way. Still, he would report my words faithfully to Quabi and bring his answer. Then he turned and began to walk off. Just as he did so, a shot was fired from the house, and the man pitched forward to the ground, then rose again and staggered back toward his people, with his right shoulder shattered and his arms swinging. "'Who did that?' I asked through the smoke, which prevented me from seeing." "'I, parbleu!' shouted LeBlanc. "'Sapristi! That black devil wanted to torture me, LeBlanc, the friend of the great Napoleon. Well, at least I've tortured him who I meant to kill.' "'Yes, you fool,' I answered. "'And we, too, shall be tortured because of your wickedness. "'You have shot a messenger carrying a flag of truce, and that the Quabies will never forgive. Oh, I tell you, you have hit us as well as him.' who, had it not been for you, might have been spared. These words I said quietly and in Dutch, so that our kaffirs might understand them, though really I was boiling with wrath. But LeBlanc did not answer quietly. "'Who are you?' he shouted. "'You wretched little Englishman, who dare to lecture me, LeBlanc, the friend of the great Napoleon.' Now I drew my pistol and walked up to the man. "'Be quiet, you drunken sot,' I said." "'for I guessed that he had drunk more of the brandy in the darkness. "'If you are not quiet, and do not obey me, who am in command here, "'either I will blow your brains out, or I will give you to these men.' "'And I pointed to Hans and the Kaffirs, who had gathered round him, muttering ominously. "'Do you know what they will do with you? "'They will throw you out of the house, and leave you to settle your quarrel with Quabi alone.' "'LeBlanc looked first to the pistol, and next at the faces of the natives.' and saw something in one or other of them, or in both, that caused him to change his note. "'Pardon, monsieur,' he said. "'I was excited. I knew not what I said. "'If you are young, you are brave and clever, and I will obey you.' And he went to his station and began to reload his gun. As he did so, a great shout of fury rose from the cattle crawl. The wounded herald had reached the quabbies and was telling them of the treachery of the white people." We'll return with Chapter 3, right after these sponsor messages. And now Chapter 3, The Rescue. 
"'The second quabby advance did not begin until about half-past seven. "'Even savages love their lives and appreciate the fact that wounds hurt very much, "'and these were no exception to the rule. "'Their first rush had taught them a bitter lesson, "'of which the fruit was evident in the crippled or dying men "'who rolled to and fro baked in the hot sun within a few yards of the stoop, "'not to speak of those who would never stir again.' Now, the space around the house being quite open and bare of cover, it was obvious that it could not be stormed without further heavy losses. In order to avoid such losses, a civilized people would have advanced by means of trenches, but of these the Quabbies knew nothing. Moreover, digging tools were lacking to them. So it came about that they hit upon another, and in the circumstances a not inefficient expedient. The cattle crawl was built of rough, unmortared stones. These stones they took, each man carrying two or three, which, rushing forward, they piled up into scattered rough defenses of about eighteen inches or two feet high. These defenses were instantly occupied by as many warriors as could take shelter behind them, lying one on top of the other. Of course, those savages who carried the first stones were exposed to our fire, with the result that many of them fell, but there were always plenty more behind. As they were being built at a dozen different points, and as we had but seven guns, before we could reload, a particular chance, of which perhaps the first builders had fallen, would be raised so high that our slugs could no longer hurt those who lay behind it. Also, our supply of ammunition was limited, and the constant expenditure wasted it so much that at length only about six charges per man remained. At last, indeed, I was obliged to order the firing to cease so that we might reserve ourselves for the great rush which could not now be much delayed. Finding that they were no longer harassed by our bullets, the Quabbies advanced more rapidly, directing their attack upon the south end of the house, where there was but one window, and thus avoiding the fire that might be poured upon them from the various openings under the veranda. At first I wondered why they selected this end, till Marie reminded me that this part of the dwelling was thatched with reeds, whereas the rest of the building, which had been erected more recently, was slated. Their object was to fire the roof. So soon as their last wall was near enough, that is, about half-past ten o'clock, they began to throw into the thatch a segais to which were attached bunches of burning grass. Many of these went out, but at length, as we gathered from their shouts, one caught. Within ten minutes, this part of the house was burning. Now our state became desperate. We retreated across the central passage, fearing lest the blazing rafters should fall upon our natives, who were losing heart and would no longer stay beneath them. But the Quabbies, more bold, clambered into the south window and attacked us in the doorway of the larger sitting room. Here the final fight began. As they rushed at us, we shot, till they went down in heaps. Almost at our last charge, they gave back, and just then the roof fell upon them. Oh, what a terrible scene was that! The dense clouds of smoke, the screams of the trapped and burning men, the turmoil, the agony. The front door was then burst in by a flank onslaught. LeBlanc and a slave who was near him were seized by black, claw-like hands and dragged out. What became of the Frenchman I do not know, for the natives hauled him away, but I fear his end must have been dreadful, as he was taken alive. The servant I saw the Masegai, so that at least he died at once. I fired my last shot, killing a fellow who was flourishing a battle-axe, then dashed the butt of the gun into the face of the man behind him, felling him, and seizing Marie by the hand, dragged her back into the northernmost room, that in which I was accustomed to sleep, and shut and barred the door. Alan! she gasped. Alan, dear! It is finished. I cannot fall into the hands of those men. Kill me, Alan. All right, I answered. I will. I have my pistol. One barrel for you, and one for me. No! Perhaps you might escape after all. But you see, I am a woman, and dare not risk it. Come now, I am ready. And she knelt down, opening her arms to receive the embrace of death, and looked up at me with her lovely, pitiful eyes. It doesn't do to kill one's love and live on oneself, I answered hoarsely. We have got to go together, and I cocked both barrels of the pistol. The Hottentot Hans, who was in the place with us, saw and understood. It is right, it is best he said, and turning, he hid his eyes with his hand. "'Wait a little, Alan,' she exclaimed. "'It will be time when the door is down, and perhaps God may still help us.' "'He may,' I answered doubtfully, "'but I would not count on it. 
Nothing can save us now unless the others come to rescue us, and that's too much to hope for. Then a thought struck me, and I added with a dreadful laugh, I wonder where we shall be in five minutes. Oh, together, dear, together for always in some new and beautiful world. For you do love me, don't you? As I love you. Maybe that's better than living on here where we should be sure to have troubles and perhaps be separated at last. I nodded my head, for though I loved life, I loved Marie more, and I felt that we were making a good end after a brave fight. They were battering at the door now, but thank heaven, Marie had made strong doors, and it held a while. The wood began to give at last, and a segai appeared through a shattered plank, but Hans stabbed along the line of it with the spear he held, that which I had snatched from the flank of the horse, and it was dropped with a scream. Black hands were thrust through the hole, and the Hottentot hacked and cut at them with the spear. But others came, more than he could pierce, and the whole doorframe began to be dragged outwards. Now, Marie, be ready, I gasped, lifting the pistol. Christ receive me, she answered faintly. It won't hurt much, will it, Ellen? You'll never feel anything, I whispered, and as with the cold sweat pouring from me, I placed the muzzle within an inch of her forehead and began to press the trigger. My God! Yes, I actually began to press the trigger softly and steadily, for I wished to make no mistake. It was at this very moment, above the dreadful turmoil of the roaring flames, the yells of the savages, and the shrieks and groans of wounded and dying men, that I heard the sweetest sound which ever fell upon my ears, the sound of shots being fired, many shots, and quite close by. Great heaven! I screamed. The Boers are here to save us. Marie! I will hold the door while I can. If I fall, scramble through the window. You can do it from the chest beneath. Drop to the ground and run towards the firing. There's a chance for you yet, a good chance. And you, you, she moaned. I would rather die with you. Do what I bid you, I answered savagely and bounded forward towards the rocking door. It was falling outward, it fell and on top of it appeared two great savages waving broad spears. I lifted the pistol, and the bullet that had been meant for Marie's brain scattered that of the first of them, and the bullet which had been meant for my heart pierced that of the second. They both went down dead, there in the doorway. I snatched up one of their spears and glanced behind me. Marie was climbing onto the chest. I could just see her through the thickening smoke. Another quabby rushed on. Hans and I received them on the points of our segais, but so fierce was his charge that they went through him as though he were nothing, and being but light, both of us were thrown backwards to the ground. I scrambled to my feet again, defenseless now, for the spear was broken in the kaffir, and awaited the end. Looking back once more, I saw that Marie had either failed to get through the window or abandoned the attempt. At any rate, she was standing near the chest, supporting herself by her right hand. In my despair, I seized the blade end of the broken assegai and dragged it from the body of the kaffir, thinking that it would serve to kill her, then turned to do the deed. But even as I turned, I heard a voice that I knew well shout, Do you live, Marie? And in the doorway appeared no savage, but Henri Marais. Slowly I backed before him, for I could not speak, and the last dreadful effort of my will seemed to thrust me towards Marie. I reached her and threw my hand that still held the gory blade around her neck. Then as darkness came over me, I heard her cry, Don't shoot, father! It is Alan, Alan who has saved my life. After that I remember no more, nor did she for a while, for we both fell to the ground senseless. When my senses returned to me, I found myself lying on the floor of the wagon house in the backyard. Glancing from half-opened eyes, for I was still speechless, I saw Marie, white as a sheet, her hair all falling about a disheveled dress. She was seated on one of those boxes that we put on the front of the wagons to drive from, Vurkishis, they're called, and as her eyes were watching me, I knew that she lived. By her stood a tall and dark young man whom I'd never seen before. He was holding her hand and looking at her anxiously, and even then I felt angry with him. Also I saw other things, for instance, my old father leaning down and looking at me anxiously, and outside in the yard, for there were no doors to the wagon house, a number of men with guns in their hands, some of whom I knew and others who were strangers. In the shadow, too, against the wall, stood my blood mare with her head hanging down and trembling all over. 
Not far from her the roan lay upon the ground, its flank quite red. I tried to rise and could not, then feeling pain in my left thigh, looked and saw that it was red also. As a matter of fact, an Sega had gone half through it and hit upon the bone. Although I never felt it at the time, this wound was dealt to me by that great quabby whom Hans and I had received upon our spears, doubtless as he fell. Hans, by the way, was there also, an awful and yet a ludicrous spectacle, for the quabby had fallen right on top of him and lain so with results that might be imagined. There he sat upon the ground, looking upwards, gasping with his fish-like mouth. Each gasp, I remember, fashioned itself into the word Alamakti, that is, Almighty, a favorite Dutch expression. Marie was the first to perceive that I'd come to life again. Shaking herself free from the clasp of the young man, she staggered towards me and fell upon her knees at my side, muttering words that I could not catch, for they choked in her throat. Then Hans took in the situation, and wriggling his unpleasant self to my other side, lifted my hand and kissed it. Next my father spoke, saying, "'Praise be to God, he lives. "'Alan, my son, I am proud of you. "'You have done your duty as an Englishman should. "'I had to save my own skin if I could. "'Thank you, father,' I muttered. "'Why, as an Englishman, more than any other sort of man, "'mine hair predicant?' asked the tall strangers, speaking in Dutch, "'although we evidently understood our language. "'The point is one that I will not argue now, sir.' "'answered my father, drawing himself up. "'But if what I hear is true, "'there was a Frenchman in that house "'who did not do his duty, "'and if you belong to the same nation, "'I apologize to you. "'Thank you, sir. "'As it happens, I do. "'Half. "'The rest of me is Portuguese, "'not English. "'Thank God.' "'God is thanked for many things "'that must surprise him,' "'replied my father in a suave voice. "'At that moment this rather disagreeable conversation, "'which even then both angered and amused me faintly, "'came to an end, for the air Marais entered the place. "'As might have been expected in so excitable a man, "'he was in a terrible state of agitation. "'Thankfulness at the escape of his only beloved child, "'rage with the Kafirs who had tried to kill her, "'and extreme distress at the loss of most of his property. "'All these conflicting emotions boiled together in his breast "'like antagonist elements in a crucible. "'The resulting fumes were party-colored and overpowering. "'He rushed up to me, blessed and thanked me, "'for he had learned something of the story of the defense, "'called me a young hero, and so forth, "'hoping that God would reward me. "'Here I remarked that he never did, poor man. "'Then he began to rave at LeBlanc, "'who had brought all this dreadful disaster upon his house, "'saying that it was a judgment on himself "'for having sheltered an atheist and a drunkard for so many years, "'just because he was French and a man of intellect. "'Someone, my father as a matter of fact, who with all his prejudices possessed a great sense of justice, reminded him that the poor Frenchman had died, or perchance was now being tortured, expiating any crimes that he might have committed. This turned the stream of his invective under the Quabi Kaviers, who had burned part of his house and stolen nearly all his stock, turning him from a rich man into a poor one in a single hour. He shouted for vengeance on the black devils, and called on all there to help him recover his beasts and kill the thieves. Most of those present, they were about thirty in all, not counting the Kafir and Hottentot after-riders, answered that they were willing to attack the Quabbies. Being residents in the district, they felt, and indeed said, that his case today might and probably would be their case tomorrow. Therefore they were prepared to ride at once. Then it was that my father intervened. Heron, he said, it seems to me that before you seek vengeance, which, as the book tells us, is the Lord's, it would be well especially for the heir Marais, to return thanks for what has been saved to him. I mean his daughter, who might now very easily be dead, or worse. He added that goods came or went according to the chances of fortune, but a beloved human life, once lost, could not be restored. This precious life had been preserved to him. He would not say by man, here he glanced at me, but by the ruler of the world acting through man. Perhaps those present did not quite understand what he, my father, had learned from Hans the Hottentot, that I, his son, had been about to blow out the brains of Marie Marais and my own when the sound of shots of those who had been gathered through the warning which I had left before I rode from the mission station had stayed my hand. He called upon the said Hans and Marie herself to tell them the story, since I was too weak to do so. Thus adjured, the little Hottentot, 
smothered as he was in blood, stood up. In the simple, dramatic style characteristic of his race, he narrated all that had happened since he met the woman on the bell but little over twelve hours before till the arrival of the rescue party. Never have I seen a tale followed with deeper interest, and when at last Hans pointed to me lying on the ground and said, There is he who did these things which it might be thought no man could do, but he, he, but a boy. Even from those phlegmatic Dutchmen there came a general cheer, but lifting myself upon my hands, I called out, Whatever I did, this poor Hottentot did also, and had it not been for him, I could not have done anything, for him and the two good horses. Then they cheered again, and Marie, rising, said, Yes, father, to these two I owe my life. I owe my life. After this, my father offered his prayer of thanksgiving in very bad Dutch, for having begun to learn it late in life, he never could really master that language, and the stalwart boors, kneeling round him, said, Amen. As the reader may imagine, the scene, with all its details, which I will not repeat, was both remarkable and impressive. What followed this prayer I do not very well remember, for I became faint from exhaustion and the loss of blood. I believe, however, that the fire having been extinguished, they removed the dead and wounded from the unburnt portion of the house and carried me into the little room where Marie and I had gone through that dreadful scene when I went with the ace of killing her. After this the Boers and Marais Kafirs, or rather slaves, whom he had collected from where they had lived away from the house, to the number of thirty or forty, started to follow the defeated Quabi, leaving about ten of their members as a guard. Here I may mention that of the seven or eight men who slept in the outbuildings that had fought with us, two were killed in the fight and two wounded. The remainder, one way or another, managed to escape unhurt, so that in all this fearful struggle in which we inflicted so terrible a punishment upon the Kafirs, we lost only three slain, including the Frenchman, Leblanc. As to the events of the next three days, I knew only what I have been told, for practically during all that time I was off my head from loss of blood, complicated with fever brought on by the fearful excitement and exertion I had undergone. All I can recall is a vision of Marie bending over me and making me take food of some sort, milk or soup, I suppose, for it seems I would touch it from no other hand. Also I had visions of the tall shape of my white-haired father, who, like most missionaries, understood something of surgery and medicine, attending to the bandages on my thigh. Afterwards he told me that the spirit actually cut the walls of the big artery, but, by good fortune, without going through them. Another fortieth of an inch, and I should have bled to death in ten minutes. On this third day, my mind was brought back from its wanderings by the sound of a great noise about the house, above which I heard the voice of Murray storming and shouting, and that of my father trying to calm him. Presently Marie entered the room, drawing two behind her a kafir carouse, which served as a curtain, for the door, it will be remembered, had been torn out. Seeing that I was awake and reasonable, she flew to my side with a little cry of joy, and kneeling down, kissed me on the forehead. "'You have been very ill, Alan, but I know you will recover now. While we were alone, which,' she added slowly, and with meaning, "'I dare say we shall not be much in the future. I want to thank you from my heart for all that you did to save me. Had it not been for you, oh, had it not been for you,' and she glanced at the bloodstains on the earthen floor, put her hands before her eyes, and shuddered. "'Nonsense, Marie,' I answered, taking her hand feebly enough, for I was very weak. Anyone else would have done as much, even if they did not love you as I do. Let us thank God that it was not in vain. But what is all that noise? Have the Quabies come back? She shook her head. No, the Boers have come back from hunting them. And did they catch them and recover the cattle? Not so. They only found some wounded men whom they shot, and the body of Monsieur Leblanc with his head cut off, taken away with other bits of him for medicine, they say to make the warriors brave. Quabi has burnt his crawl and fled with all his people to join the other Kafirs in the big mountains. Not a cow or a sheep did they find, except a few that had fallen exhausted, and those had their throats cut. My father wanted to follow them and attack the red Kafirs in the mountains, but the others would not go. They said there are thousands of them, and that it would be a mad war from which not one of them would return alive. He is wild with grief and rage, for, Alan, dear, we are almost ruined. "'especially as the British government are freeing the slaves "'and only going to give us a very small price, "'not a third of their value. "'But hark, 
"'He is calling me, "'and you must not talk much or excite yourself "'lest you should be ill again. "'And now you have to sleep and eat and get strong. "'Afterwards, dear, you may talk.' "'And bending down once more, "'she blushed and kissed me, "'then rose and glided away.' Join us next week Sunday night for chapters 4 and 5 of Marie by H. Ryder Haggard. If you're enjoying our story, please do stop a moment and send a kind review for 1001 Greatest Love Stories. We would appreciate that very much, and it helps new listeners find us. Until next Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, everyone, this is your host, John Hagedorn. Everyone stay safe, and we'll be back soon. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.